Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. With me tonight is none other than Richard Fernandez. Richard, tell me a little bit about yourself. Hey there. I, I, I'm a real I was I originally started out as a real estate photographer, and then I kind of went into the media and marketing aspect of it. I shoot video. I shot some films. I do a lot of commercial shooting, but more so, I kind of set up corporations with their own video people, uh, video teams, video, uh, photography teams, equipment, computers, everything. So I was talking with you uh, before we started the cast, and you were showing me a few cameras. Uh, what's in your bag right now? What are you using as your daily shooter? My daily shooter is um, right now is I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of a Sony fan right the mo- right at the moment. So I have a couple A7s's, and I I shoot those a lot, even for stills. I'm amazed how good they are for stills, especially black and whites. Nice. It's it's almost like that uh, Leica quality, you know. On stills, um, I did uh, pick up uh, another camera recently, a little uh, 4K shooter, the uh, LX100. Yeah. That's in the bag. Uh, I haven't had much time to play with it. It's okay. But I am a former Canon man, like yourself, huh? <laughs> well, I'm not former. I still, I haven't, still have them? Yeah, I haven't given up any of my Canon stuff yet. Um, I did pare down a little bit. I was up to uh, three 5D Mark III's for a while. And now I only have one left in my kit, but I still have a 6D and I have a couple of uh, T2Is actually floating around that I use for danger cams now. So I still have one Canon. I have a 5D Mark III, but it's collecting dust. I'm sorry to say. uh, No problem. I have so much invested in (laughs) Canon glass right now that I haven't haven't decided yet whether I'm going to completely disown Canon and move on to something else entirely or if I'm just going to keep my 5D equipment. I'm not unhappy with the uh, quality that I've been getting out of the uh, 5D Mark III for video and and not unhappy enough as to uh, jump ship quite yet. And, uh, you know, with all the glass already, that's three quarters of the investment right there. So Never sell your glass. I know. And (laughs) I... You know, I was counting through my lenses the other day, and with all the red stripes in my kit, it's a pretty substantial investment in glass. You, you can never sell the glass because, you know, every few years, each, you know, Canon was slow, and then it came out with the 5D Mark III, and it kind of picked up again. Now, Nikon's made a little move. Sony's made a little move. Panasonic, well, they're kind of always making little moves. Yeah. Um, but you never sell the glass because you never know which one's going to, you know, I think, I think Ken is going to come out with that 5D Mark IV or five. I don't know if they want to do a four. I, I, I think we're going to be surprised what they come up with. I hope uh, there's some innovation around the horizon. The uh, 7D Mark II, and we might as well start with that. It's not very impressive of an upgrade to the uh, 7D original. I'm looking at the specs here on the spec sheet, and we're dealing with a 20 megapixel sensor versus an 18 megapixel sensor. Uh, they did give it the 5D Mark III's focusing system, uh, 10 frames per second for JPEG and RAW, and then they upgrade some storage options and added GPS. You think that's really a move forward? It kind of sounds like they're... It doesn't, it doesn't when, you, when you have that camera, spec-wise, it doesn't look like a big upgrade. The focusing system's closer to the, was it the 1D? Uh, yeah, it's the, the same thing you see in the 1DC as well yeah. as the 5D Mark III, which is but an awesome focus system. When you, when you have it in your hands... And you're shooting with it. If you're a wildlife photographer or a sports photographer, you appreciate that camera tremendously. 
the only thing is where they where they really messed that up is they didn't give an articulating screen or a touch screen. Then it would have been a decent video camera. Yeah, but I think um, I, I was reading on I believe Borrower Lenses blog, and they had a teardown of the 7D Mark II, and supposedly it has the best uh, weather ceiling that's available in any of Canon's lineup right now. And so if you added an articulating screen, you'd kind of be knocking that ability to really seal the camera out of the equation. And like you said, this is a really awesome sports photographer and wildlife photographer uh, camera because it gives you that uh, micro or that uh, 1.6 crop. So then you get a little bit more reach out of your big lenses and you have high frame rates and those are the two things and then shooting in like nasty weather. So... Yeah, but you know you're you're uh, you 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 have the G four right the GH four right? Yes, I do have the GH four. Isn't that isn't that kind of weather? It's weather resistant, right? Uh, it's weather resistant. I've taken it through a few waterfalls on a couple of shoots and haven't killed it. Um, I did do some damage to one of my GH fours when I was shooting uh, by the ocean. Um, a large wave crested over a rock when I wasn't paying attention, and now they're the hot shoe as well as a few other components are starting to grow some pretty okay. nasty electrical marks on them. It still I, shoots, but uh, I would I trust my could, Canon for that more than I would the GH4. I think they could still do what they did with the Nikon D750. They could at least give it the tilting screen. I think they could do that and still keep all the weather ceiling because it would just be one cable. That's and true. They make sure that's, but the touchscreen, I know they say every time I ask them, because I, I went to a Canon, Canon on the last um, NAB, and they say, Pros don't want a touchscreen. And I said, I'm a pro. I want a touchscreen. But if a pro doesn't want it, they can always disable it. That's and, absolutely true. And with that, with that Canon, the 7D has the same, uh, was a dual pixel as yep. a 7D. And without that touch on there, I mean, a Joy 6 great. If you're used to using them, you're probably used to using them. I know I am. But still, it's not the same thing as being able to touch. You can almost get rid of a focus puller. That's true. No. To some extent, I actually like the touchscreen when I have to navigate complicated menus. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not a big fan of it when I'm just trying to set a focus point because I've kind of gotten used to you know, hitting the button on the top and then uh, moving the joystick around to change my focus points and hitting yeah. it one more time. And once you get that kind of programmed into muscle memory, it's what you do. But with like the GH4, for example... Uh, once you start diving into uh, deeper and deeper into the menus, if you're scrolling through with a scroll wheel, it can take you a lot longer than if you're just clicking with your finger and touching things and moving along and then backing back out of the menu again. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you're right on that. And, uh, you know, I, I have seen people use it um, uh, for focus points as well, but that hasn't been the way I've been using it. And everybody has a different preference. You're the first uh, person that shoots pro photography I've heard that said, yeah, definitely a touchscreen. So... I, I, you know what, I, I've, you know, I watch a couple other podcasts and there's that Doug K guy and he always says it too. And, 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 and it's just, it's, it's, it's awesome thing. Once you've gotten used to using that touchscreen, even just to navigate, to pinch, pinch in on a picture, yeah. we're just talking photography right now to pinch in versus, you know, it's just, it's, it's why not have it in there? You can always disable it. That's true. And going through your photos, uh, that's something I didn't think about. It is a lot more convenient on the GH4 when you're scrolling through a bunch of pictures. You can just pinch in and it brings up the tiny picture menu just like it would be on your phone. And when you want to like flip a picture past, you can just quickly move it with your thumb. Uh, yeah. That interactive 
uh, portion of it is really handy. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of shooting and the menu system, but you're right. Uh, for previewing photos, that is a really handy thing to have. Especially for photographers and videographers, too. You can scoot through the menus quickly. You want to check a shot, make sure you got the lighting right. It's, you know, although you're not going to really, me- you're not going to, you're not going to go off the screen, but you still get an idea from it. Oh, yeah. All right. So while we're on the photography subject here and on Canon, um, Canon Senior Managing Director of Image Communications Business Division has confirmed the existence of a high megapixel DSLR in the wild. It uh, looks like Canon's also thinking about releasing a new line of EF lenses for high pixel use. What do you think about going to a 50 megapixel sensor on your DSLR? Oof, that's, that's a big one. Um, all right, I've used a Sony 36, okay. and, I, and, and that's about as much as you can go without having to worry about new lenses, I think. But the problem is going to be you're going to spend this money on this 50 megapixel camera. You're going to lose some low light ability, right? Yeah. You're going, to gra- you're going to gain what? Uh, you're going to gain definition. So your landscape photographers and your fashion photographers, print photographers, they're going to probably want these. Um, Maybe people doing I, product shots and things like that. Product shots are going to definitely want them. I, I, I don't think we need 50 megapixels. I really don't. I, 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 and the lenses, you're going to have to wait for lenses. So they're going to have to pop these lenses out real quick. I'm not really big on the megapixels. I, I never have been. I think 36 is plenty enough. Um, personally, I don't have one that's over 24 megapixels, a camera that's over 24. I got rid of the A7S and I, and I had the A10, but I don't use that anymore. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not big on this the megapixel race. What I do like is what Olympus is going to be doing. They have that technology they have where it uses a 16 megapixel sensor and then it moves it around. Oh, really? I haven't seen it, that yet. Yeah, what it does is it I, – I, I, what is it? Um, I can't think of – Does it do like a spatial type of thing where it basically like memorizes and maps the location and then takes multiple yeah. pictures in a burst? And what, what, yeah, I think what it does is it moves it and takes all reds, moves it, takes all blues. It does something where it uses it and it moves it into like different locations with that – the stabilization part. Huh. And then, and then it puts those all together. That way you can turn it on and off when you need it. Well, I'm kind of excited actually, you know, not on the big pixel front, but on the smaller pixel front, Sony's uh, released a couple of uh, prototype sensors that are uh, back moving back to CCD. And so they're not huge um, resolution, but they don't have to be because the, each of the individual three sensors are pulling the three color primary colors and then combining the picture on the back end. So you get um, a full sensor readout and you don't have to worry about some of the stuff that you run into with uh, CMOS, like Jello Cam and everything else. So, global shutter—that's a cool thing to have. And then, you know, remember how hot CCDs were for the first part of the early 2000s, and then now everything's CMOS, and now we're excited yeah. about CCD again. It's, it's, everything comes around, kind of like it's—it's it's strange. Yeah, on the uh, megapixel front, though, I'm worried about Canon. Uh, making new glass. They're pretty slow on the turnaround on a lot of these lenses. There's still uh, some of the L-glass, like the 3514, that's made out of plastic and has yet to be upgraded after five or six years worth of rumors of the upgrade coming, you know? And I, yeah. look, it took a long time to go from the um, arguably uh, disappointing 24-millimeter uh, F14 to the Mark II version that had all the corrections and repairs that made it a good lens finally. 
uh, Canon's going to release a whole new set of glass. I mean, good luck with them getting that done. Exactly. And then, you, you know, you're finally getting some good glass out of the, the second part is like Sigma. The Sigma 50 is supposed to be really great. Yeah. The 35 is really great. And, and how are these going to, you know, work on this camera? I, I don't know. It's, you know, everybody complains about going back like on Sony. Oh, it doesn't have any lenses. Well, that's why I was, I'm so excited about that Mark II is because without the image stabilization in the lens, they can make these lenses a lot faster. Um, so I don't know. At this 50 megapixel camera, it's nice. There's going to be people that want it, just like you know, a lot of people like that 810 with that 36 megapixels. But those those lenses are just going to take so long. Yeah. It's, it's going to be forever. Well, and you have the Nikon option already on the table. I mean, uh, the 800 is pushing what 46 megapixels, I believe. So if you really do need a high megapixel camera, you got that. Or you could always go up to say a um, a uh, yeah, medium format camera. Medium format. I was I was thinking of the word too. I yeah, it was just not coming there. to me right <laughs> there. But yeah, the, the medium format, that's what a lot of people are using for um, spreads and uh, product shots and stuff like that. And oh, yeah. and it's, you know, if you need uh, 60 or 70 megapixels, that's the way to go. And now they're coming down in price even. Um, nope. I, was at, I think it's uh, Panasonic. Didn't they release a medium format that was uh, uh, under 12,000? It's Pentax. Oh, is it Pentax? Philip Bloom has it. I think it's a 645 something or other, and he's in love with it. Yeah, and so if you really need all of the megapixels, that's probably the way you'd want to go, something that's that was option. designed for it. Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, if they want to do 50 megapixels, build a medium format, build a separate thing, then people are going to know the lenses are going to take forever, which you know they're going to take forever. It's just, it's inevitable. Now, you mentioned the uh, Sony A7S and lens compatibility. Have you looked at the uh, Sony LAEA4 adapter? Yeah, I I, um, I played with that for about two weeks. Uh, the client ordered one. I got one for them, and I and I played with it because I had to show them how to use it. It's it's good, but you're you're reliant on the Minolta glass, and not everything works with it. Most of it does, but not everything works with it. It's it's a good it's a good thing. Better now that like the the 7D Mark II has the in-body stabilization, then it becomes uh, an exciting prospect. Prior to that, I know you're probably used to shooting without stabilization. Yeah, I am. And I'm not. If I'm going handheld, I always try to have a stabilized lens or I lock it down. So I'm kind of hesitant on anything that doesn't have stabilization. So it wasn't something I used a lot, but now with the 7D Mark II and that stabilization in the lens, I can't wait till they bring it to the next camera, the S S two. Um, it is more of an appealing item to me. Now, if you're into stabilization, have you thought about possibly going to one of the uh, three axis gimbal systems, like the uh, uh, what Nem- Nebulous uh, four thousand or something like that? They're I, pushing I only like six hundred bucks, and for the price, you put a small lens on your Sony A seven S, and you have a pretty sexy um, option for video. You know, I, I was watching was it Dave Dugdale. Yeah, I've been He's talking to Dave. One. He's been playing with one. He's pretty excited about it. I mean, you guys are both my gurus there. You guys are just awesome. But he's he's kind of holding off, and I was about to pop on one last night until I just, you know what? I'm waiting for CES to come through and finish up out here in Vegas, and then I might pop on one. I'm not quite sure. I don't really care. I don't really need a huge rig for yeah. what type of I what I do. 
So it is something that's interesting to me, and he shows it does work with an A7. You'd almost um, want to move to something smaller like uh, the GH4 or even smaller than that yet. I, or I got that perfect camera for it, this LX100. Oh, yeah. 4K, really small, really light, 24 to, uh, was it 24 to 75 or, yeah, 24 to 75 or 24 to 70, 1.8, 1.7. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm looking at it. I was thinking about it. For $600, you really can't go wrong. Well, the only issue with the the current line of low-price uh, 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 three-axis stabilizers is that there's a little bit of programming and a little bit of setup involved no matter what camera and lens you're using because you kind of have to, just like a regular uh, vest system or something like that, you have to balance them out. And a lot of people have been running into weird issues where, you know, maybe when it's cold, it doesn't stabilize quite the same as when it's hot or, you know, it, oh, you... Um, took your camera off and put it back on. And now if for some reason it's leaning a little bit forward or leaning a little bit back and you have to get into the software and change it. So it's not quite perfect yet. Some of the more expensive ones that are in the uh, five or $6,000 range have easy to use stuff that's kind of pre-set up. But as you go lower in price, it's more on the user to figure out how to set all that stuff up. And that can be a, a technological hurdle to jump to get to use it actually. Exactly. It's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, where, where do you stop your expertises? You know, uh, I'm an okay audio guy because I used to do recording studio stuff, but I kind of limited myself on that. You know, I, I'm good at filming things. The tech side, the computer side, software, something like that, I have delegated that to somebody else. You can only know so much. So one of these stabilizers, if it's going to require a lot of work, it's not going to be for a lot of people. But this one looks pretty simple, but, you know, it's, it's I don't know. Well, the, I'm just not jumping on the gun on it yet. The price is low enough that I don't want to say an impulse buy, but it's one of those things where you know you could pull the trigger without getting too worried about it. And yeah. if it doesn't suit your needs down the road, well, they're pretty popular right now. I'm sure you could at least get the eBay value out of it and only yeah, exactly. lose like fifty bucks or a hundred bucks, and you well, still have on. to experiment with it. I mean, if you look back to a year ago, you probably paid almost that much for what a glide cam. Yep. A, a decent one, you know, and then going up more when you get the big rigs you can put on yourself. But just, you know, a simple one, you're paying 400 bucks, you know, retail. Yeah, the Glidecam uh, H, uh, HV or HX, whichever one it was, 1000 started about 350 to $400. And the yeah. 2000 model was uh, in the 450 range. And with a few accessories, it wasn't hard to push 500 bucks. Exactly. So, you know, it's not a bad deal, especially with the lighter camera. You know what? I might have to pop on one of these to show the LX, <laughs> LX on because that's what Dave, uh, uh, Dave was. I think he wanted to try to get the LX100 in at the same time to try them both together. It looks like a, perf a perfect mating. You know what, man? Maybe I'll see. Yeah. Um, I, I've thought about it, but I don't have any projects where I really need that right now. So I haven't really justified it in my mind yet. Right now, I'm still kind of on a buying spree for uh, GH4 lenses. So. Yeah, you got, we're going to have to talk about that later. Oh, no problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. What do we got on the news list here? Okay, the uh, Atomic Shogun. Uh, I think we were actually talking about this pre-show as well. Um, this is finally out on the market after about a year of, of being in waiting. And at $2,000, it's offering internal 4K for ProRes as well as DNX HD at 10-bit 422. Um, we're talking about, looks like five hours on a two-terabyte hard drive with the maximum ProRes data rate. What do you think about going 4K in an external recorder? 
is that really worth it? Well, okay, you have the GH4, so you don't need it. And actually, going from that 10 bit, 8 bit to 10 bit for you isn't going to be a huge thing unless you're doing a lot of grading, um, from what I've read. Uh, I haven't really run into enough issues with the 4K out of the GH4 to really yeah. be upset. As long as I pay attention to what I'm shooting, my white balance and, and lighting, then I don't really have to do a ton of heavy grading in post. And if you don't have to do a ton of heavy grading, a lot of these flimsier Kodaks like the uh, H.264 4K Kodak and some of the AVC HD Kodaks aren't really that bad. No, but you know what? Like somebody, okay, for an A7S, you kind of kind of need this to be able to take um, advantage, really advantage of the S-Log That's settings. That's true. Because uh, from what I can see, I mean, when you're, when you're using the S-Log, you have to like, you have to go up two stops or down two stops because your screen isn't really showing you what you're going to be getting. It's, it's kind of hard to explain until you're using it, but this, this monitor supposedly is going to help you with that and the LUTs. Um, I think it's a decent monitor from what I've read, you know? Um, I've been looking at a little bit of the uh, A7S uh, 4K footage out of it, and we were also talking about this in the pre-show. It, it really like brings out some of the uh, downsides of the particular sensor used in there. You know, you yeah. start to get a little bit of, of artifacting and you start to get uh, a little, well, the Jello cam is more prevalent in the 4K mode than it is in the uh, 1080p version yeah. of the footage. So those two things are an issue. Honestly. People talk, about, people talk about the Jello cam and that's just if you're doing a lot of pan shots. I mean, you know. It's pretty strong with the A7S though. Um, stronger, I would say, than the uh, 5D Mark III. If you're yeah. moving back and forth, uh, shooting in low light, it's fairly noticeable. There are ways to correct it in post, and I have used some of those, and they're not too bad. Yeah. But it's pretty strong, and it's not a a fast pan that requires things to turn start turn in no, sideways. you're right, you're I'm right. I'm talking like a medium speed pan from one character to another across a scene. You know? Okay. So, and that's enough to get people to start moving at not a 45 or anything crazy like that, but we're starting to see legs and heads, you know, be off by a couple degrees. Yeah, but if you're, if you're, do, if you're a documentary shooter, no problem. Yeah. And, it, and for uh, people sitting down and talking and for stationary scenes, the A7S is great. Um, yeah. The only thing I see, well, not the only thing, one of the things I don't like about the whole external recorder issue, I used to run around with a uh ninja when they first came out yeah and i thought oh man i'm gonna get all this extra resolution i'm gonna be doing all this grading and post and i was recording in camera as well as recording on the ninja and 95 percent of the time i would just go to the card on the camera grab that and work with the easy footage unless i really screwed up on something then i would go to the ninja and grab my clips but exactly it was such a, a an extra headache and hassle to provide the batteries for the ninja to hook up the ninja you have an hdmi connection for the ninja so then you have a flimsy way of connecting it to your camera and it started to be this thing where i would leave it laying in my bag on purpose because i just didn't want to mess around with it unless somebody asked me to get it out yeah you know and then you have to yeah exactly if you're going to be doing a lot of a uh, grading then you have to worry about that till then not really and then you have to worry about connectors and, 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 and all that. It's, it's a good thing if you have an A7S and you want the 4K. You don't need it for the GH4. Um, I guess you can't even use it with the Samsung. 
Oh, I, I don't know. I haven't messed around with the, the NX1, I believe, is what yeah, you're talking NX1, about. Yeah, NX1, you can't even use it with that because there's something with their HDMI right now. It doesn't work with it. But if somebody needs a monitor, they want the 4K for their A7S. They want the audio inputs because it does have the audio inputs. It's, it's an okay thing. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'll get one. I don't know if I'll ever use it, but I'll end up getting one. Now, how does the, uh, have you messed around with the sound devices units at all? On on the on the uh, on the the Shogun? No, the sound devices. The the company they make um, a field recorder slash uh, video device. I believe no. it's called. I'm, maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong. Sound devices. No, I think you're. I, I think I it's like the seven forty four T or something like that. It's um, a video recorder slash uh, audio recorder. I haven't even. I know. I have. I have no idea on that one. No. I was looking at one of them at NAB. I haven't really uh, spent much time with it, so. I might be getting it wrong, but those provide three or four XLR inputs as well as a video recording, and I think they're only a grand or two more than the Shogun, and they're in like a hardened shell. And but they, it's not it's not 4K though, right? Uh, no, I think they're 1080p. But yeah. the reason I bring that up is because a few people have mentioned that well, we get XLR inputs, and that's a huge benefit for going with the Shogun. Well, there are plenty of really awesome, you know, external recorders that do great, you know, audio work and they're less than 2000 or if they're more than that, they also do a bunch of other stuff that's more conducive to filmmaking than what the Shogun's offering. Yeah. So it's kind of a a real specific uh group of people that are going to want the the Shogun for anything. Uh, I'm looking at the uh FS the Sony FS700 and 7 series owners. Because yeah. those cameras don't shoot internal 4K, and they're like four or five thousand dollar cameras. I, I I think the FS 700 is like an eight thousand dollar camera. So you're you're getting into big productions where people maybe the client requires 4K ProRes or 4K uh, Avid DNX HD. Then it starts to make sense. And if you're on a budget where you're spending eight grand on a camera or ten grand on a camera, then yeah. what's two grand? Well, that's a drop in the hat. But if you're a GH4 owner or a Sony A7S owner, you're—I mean, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like you'd already be working on somewhat of a restricted budget. And when you look at something that's two thousand dollars, a lot of times that's the difference between a second camera or a couple of lenses oh, or I, an external recorder. I think if you bought the A7S, you kind of already. When I bought the A7S, I already figured I was going to have to buy some kind of 4K recorder. I wasn't sold on the Shogun. I was. What is that Ninja Star? Is that that little one they have? Yeah, the Ninja Star. But I believe that's only 1080p, isn't it? Yeah. If they make, if I would pay two thousand dollars for a 4K Ninja Star without a monitor. Well, I think uh, in the last round of devices of this nature, uh, didn't um, one of the uh, computer adapter card companies make one that did not have a monitor, and it was just like you stuck a CF card into it, and it recorded. Uh, 1080p in some kind of uh, ProRes format? You know, I think there's one. I saw one on BH, B&H, but I'm not sure if that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, it had like an adapter plate that had uh, a bunch of quarter 20 holes, like a Swiss cheese type deal. And it was just that and an adapter. Oh, it's a card for the computer. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no, it was for your camera. But um, the company, the same company makes a ton of like audio adapters and input adapters for your computer, like multi-track recording and switch gear. Um, it might have been a Blackmagic project. Uh, I think it was actually, I think it was a black magic item. It, it's escaping what it was called, but it was just a small box that you could stick a, 
a memory card into, and it would record 1080p. And so maybe with Blackmagic's offerings of all these other cameras, and now they're moving into 4K pretty strongly, maybe they'll offer up something like that to compete with the Shogun at NAB 2015. I would hope so. You know, but I tell you, I tell you that Ninja Star, something that size, 4K recorder, that would be good. This one's okay, but like I said, like you said, do you really need all that data? Yeah, probably you know. not. Well, and the, there's hidden costs to to all that data and everything is. You're now you're looking at probably a server unit. You're looking yep. at um, a new computer, a new computer for editing. Yeah, or you're gonna have to transcode into something or use proxy files, which is even more of of a time consuming effort. New then, graphics cards. Yep, and you're gonna have to power that thing up. You're gonna have to deal with transferring uh, two terabytes at a time for a five hour project. I mean, I know commercials that are only three minutes or two minutes long, and they shoot more than five hours yeah. in a single day. Well. Five hours, that means two terabytes. So let's say you shot 10 total hours on a three-day project. Now you have four terabytes worth of stuff to deal with, and you have to have the hard drive space to, to take care of that. And that's a lot of data to access, so you're probably going to need some uh, RAID equipment so that you have fast access to it. And yep. the, the dollar count just keeps getting higher and higher. Yeah, that Shogun, that Shogun cost you $2,000, but it's probably going to cost you another $10,000 to be able to use it properly. Yeah. Well, I run a really ghetto RAID system for my my backup and all my storage. And even that, building it myself and going with an open source uh, server format and everything else, it still hit uh, almost two grand by the time I was done populating with hard drives and, and adding RAM and everything else. So it's not very hard to invest a lot of money in computer Real resources. Real fast. Now, uh, speaking of computer resources here, uh, 4kshooter.net posted a video from Vimeo user Gallo Calcia, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, so. He is using a uh, GH4's 4K video with Adobe Camera Raw to process the video in post and do basically color correction, sharpening, and all that. Um, that was a common practice for DNG files for people who were trying to shoot raw footage on a 5D Mark III. Did you watch this video? You know, I, I was trying to watch the video, but I couldn't really get in. So I read about it. But, you know, I, I when you're talking about them with the 5D, you're talking about the Magic Lantern hack. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's and, it. And, I, and I, I, I tried it out a little bit, and it was just, it was so time-consuming. I mean, I understand that there's people that are going to do that, and there's people that need that. But... I, I don't really have the time for that. I don't think I could ever have the time for that. I mean, because you're basically processing each image individually, right? Yeah. Well, um, the idea is that you shoot a bunch of clips and you use pretty much the same processing for that set of clips. Yeah. Then you do the same thing for the next set of clips and so on and so forth. But, but yeah, still, you still have to go still, through every single clip. And your and your computer is going to have to sit there and generate and and, and, and go through all these clips, I, you know it's, you know for a minute a two minute thing. But can you imagine shooting a, a thirty minute project? Oh man, like that! <laughs> what a hassle! And then you know syncing audio, keeping track of files. You better be really organized if you're working with something like this and know exactly what every file is, where it came from, and what it's for. You know because exactly, especially with the audio. Yeah. I mean, we're spoiled nowadays with digital. You know, I, I remember having to run the time code thing. You know, it's, it's a lot different now. You know, the computers can, you know, basically sync up audio for you now. 
with plural eyes or, or, or final X, final cup pro X does it. Yeah. For you. I, you know, I was really lucky when I was pretty young, I was able to do one actual film project and even that, you know, uh, getting the clapboard and the audio to sync up. I never really got mine right. And thankfully it was like a three minute thing, but, uh, yeah, in fact, going back to that sort of thing, imagine how much more expensive it was to get into filmmaking than it is right now. Even back in like the late 90s, cameras were at least five grand to get started, and that wasn't including any extra gear, lights or anything. And, oh, yeah. and I mean, it wasn't unreasonable to expect to spend twenty or $30,000 on a film kit. And now... We have people who are griping because something's a thousand dollars or something's like five hundred dollars. I don't know if you remember the Canon. Was it the GL one? Was it the GL one? It was a white one. It had a big lens on a honking lens. Yeah, on it. yeah. It mistakenly safe. call it a G GH one, but it's yeah, it's the GL one and the XL one, which were the very first Canon uh, DV. They were like, I think they were like fifteen grand or something like starting off. Well, I think originally or something like that. That seems a little high, but they were definitely expensive. I want to say the XL one, which was the higher end one, it, it had interchangeable lens and it was a standard definition camera. And I think that was like five grand with okay. the um, without the zoom. And then the zoom was another $2,000. And then if I remember right, the GL1 was the lower model. And didn't that have a fixed lens like it was a 20x zoom built into it? I think that's what it was. And then, But there was a broadcast version of those because I remember somebody bought one that I knew for like eight grand. And he's like, this is a $40,000 camera. And I got it for eight grand. And I said, yeah, because everything's digital now. Um, and I went and bought my first, what was it? HV 30. Oh yeah. And, and, and I was able, and I, and I Jimmy rigged, what was it? Uh, Jag, Jag, something. Yeah, one of the, uh, the lens adapters with the like yeah, vibration and, control system. And, and you had to, you had to hold it upside down to actually use it. Yeah. Um, those crazy mounts. I started, yep. um, I switched over from a, a GL1 and an XL1 to a HV20, the very first round of those. And uh, that was when it was still shooting kind of like anamorphic HD, where, you know, it was a like a, a 21 by 9 ratio or whatever. And yeah. it was, that that was even like, wow, look at this. We're oh, finally yeah. getting like an awesome camera for filmmakers. And we were yeah. so excited to buy all this Nikon glass and adapt these vibrating devices and, you know, flip our monitors upside down or mount our cameras upside down so that we didn't have to flip them in post. And that was, oh, really it was digital. Oh, it's digital tape. And I remember, you know, it's amazing how this thing goes because a digital tape is still, when you took it into the computer, you had to like, Oh, it was one to one transfer time. So <laughs> when, when you're, uh, uh, we, we shot a, a feature length on those and we had 27 tapes when we were done and it was literally 27 hours of sitting in front of the computer loading mm -hmm. footage from the camera. Exactly. And we were like we were really excited because oh man, we have this digitally now. We can edit this and you know, we can work on it. We don't have to go to a cutting room floor. I don't even think uh younger kids know what a cutting room floor is anymore. No, they they have no clue. No clue, no clue. Oh man. Um reminiscing about the GH or that series of cameras is kind of <laughs> Yeah, it's a long time ago, you know. It's a long time ago. You know, and and I, you know, I know you're going to bring something else up. I, I, I do got to throw something out there for oh, everybody no listening to this. Is is that you are the man, and I'm going to tell you why you are the man. You have come up with the biggest hack that most that everybody has probably used that's in the indie film industry, and that was your iRig hack. 
Oh, you know, I don't, I do stuff like that, but I don't really think of it as popular or not popular. That one is huge. You have no idea. And that actually, that is a decent device. Once you solder it, it is an easy solder. It's a decent device. Yeah, they've gotten uh, smart, though, on people. Um, They've changed the wire color codes on a few of the newer versions so that it's a little more complicated to sort out. It's it is. It's really nice for thirty five dollars. I've always been a little frustrated with the whole audio adapter market for cameras. And it's been like this since what, uh, early 2000s or before that, when uh, Studio One was offering adapters. They sell these two XLR input adapters with very little electronics inside of them. And Mm -hmm. they charge an an exorbitant amount of money for them, four or $500 for these things. And what's in them? You you have a couple operational amplifiers. You have a 9-volt battery, and you have some rheostats and a couple of audio jacks. That's not very complicated circuitry. And a lot of that stuff, like uh, with the iRig Pre, all of that is done on a single chip inside of the uh onside the board so all you have is some support stuff like a little uh, transformer to ramp up the uh, 48 volt voltage for the unit and a couple of resistors pull down and pull up resistors to control the settings on the chip itself it's not very complicated and that's that ic it's only a two dollar or one dollar ic so mm-hmm. we're talking a case that contains maybe three dollars worth of parts and they're still selling it for thirty five dollars. Yeah. So I mean, the markup is incredible on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I hate to say a name, you know, you know, you know, what I'm talking about there. And, oh, and yeah, I yeah. love his stuff, but you know, there again, I don't understand the size of it. It's huge. It could be much smaller. You know. Anyways. Well, and I sat down with a few of the um, audio companies in the past, and again, I won't say any names either. And I, but I've told them, I'm like, look, you need to put bigger knobs on this thing. You need to make it more user-friendly. Dip switches all over the place are, are painful for most people to use, and a lot of people don't know what they do or how they work because they don't work with audio equipment. And then no manuals included. You have to go to the website and download a PDF. I know everybody has internet, but come on. You know, <laughs> for 400 bucks, throw a freaking manual in there and send it along with your product, you know? And couldn't they make it the size of a battery grip? Oh, yeah. That is not an issue at all. In fact... um, some of the chips for these uh, 48 volt phantom power devices, they're the size of the back of the plug of the XLR jack themselves. So the only thing you're limited by is a battery compartment and an enclosure to hold the thing. And if you do something like the iRig Pre, where it's just injection mold plastic, you can basically make it as small as three XLRs will will fit into a container or you could go with the 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 half size xlr jacks and go with like a wire adapter instead and put it on the bottom of a gh4 i mean the gh4 you don't need that extra battery grip i had the gh3 and i had battery grips for it but that gh4 runs on that battery i mean gh3 ran for the battery forever i don't know how about the gh4 yeah it does pretty well um it'd be great on the bottom there but i don't i don't understand why they don't think about that stuff well, anyways i'm sorry to have sidetracked you on that but I oh no problem there uh, one more thing uh, while we're talking about audio and the GH4, I know there's rumors of the GH5 coming up. And one thing I hope to see, because it seems like uh, Panasonic kind of does a, a TikTok sort of upgrade. You know, they had the GH1. The GH2 was a pretty uh, decent upgrade. The GH3 was kind of like fixing the stuff that was wrong with the GH2. And then the GH4 was a pretty decent upgrade. 
So I'm guessing if they come out with a GH5 this year, and I know I have this in the show notes as a possible 8K and 4K, I think the 8K might be a little bit preposterous. But imagine if they did an update to the battery grip for the GH5 where they took out all of the 4K adapting business and the SDI outputs and just gave us a couple of XLR inputs that go directly into the camera with phantom power and still allowed it to have batteries internally. I think we just came up with a company. Yeah, exactly. Because right now the adapter, it's huge and it's a huge hidden cost because you buy the adapter. Now you don't have any power for your camera. So now you need an Anton Bauer battery pack. You need a rig to mount the whole thing on. You need an SDI device that can capture that output. You need all the other things that go along with it. And suddenly you've bought this adapter and you're going to need another two or $3,000 worth of support equipment to at run that it. Point, at that point, why even have the GH4? Exactly. You spend that much money on it and you might as well go to a more expensive a, camera a that has everything. A C500. A C500. Yep. Right? That has 4K in it. Buy one of those. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. you know, uh, any of Sony's uh, nice FS models are pretty sexy to have around too. So I don't know. I don't, I guess like I see what Panasonic was trying to do and it's really awesome that they're looking at what the consumers want and trying to address it it's somehow. It's just, I think they really fell down on that one and it pushes the envelope. It helps push the envelope because then other people will start thinking too, because if Sony and Panasonic, Panasonic came and did this and Sony kind of got interested. Then Samsung got interested. Maybe Canon and Nikon will get interested too. I'm not well, sure you know. when we're going to start seeing uh, 4K internal recording, though, in so- or in Canon's lower line. I'm kind of feeling like maybe Canon is going to keep that stuff sequestered to the 1DC and their Cinema EOS lines, simply because it feels like they're almost crippling the 5D Mark III and below on purpose so that it becomes a barrier to push you to their higher-level cameras. Like they, they will, they will, they'll bring it. They'll have to eventually. So that's, you know, yeah. but you know, you brought up 8K. 8K. Now, 8K on that GH4. Or GH5. GH5. It's not possible. Well, it might be possible. Um, if you look in the show notes up at the top here, uh, I've got the uh, megapixel rating and yeah. technically you can squeeze 8K out of a 33 megapixel sensor. 33 so megapixels. Now, it's a 16 how- megapixel sensor right now. So if yeah. they quartered the size of their pixel density on the sensor itself, you could step up to 8K and squeeze 33 megapixels onto that sensor. You, you would, would never be able to shoot above 400 ISO. Yeah, I know. You'd be limited to like four or 800 ISO maximum, but uh, it, it's something that could happen. I don't really... I hear the Samsung can shoot, what is it, 6K on the chip, and then it's down or something like that. Oh, really? And that's an APS-C, you know, size sensor. I, I can see them doing that on there. I just don't see them doing it on the Micro Four Thirds. Well, and it would be really strange if they issued 4K out into a consumer model camera without really having it available in any, any of their higher-end lines. I yeah. mean, what is, what is it that consumers are going to do with that, especially if it's in a H.265 Kodak? That Kodak, I don't know if you've been watching any of the computer tests, but it will peg out a, a top-of-the-line i5 processor and almost completely peg out an i7-4790K processor just transcoding. Uh, yeah. it, that's too much for the current generation of computers. You're going to end up with a bunch of people shooting with H.265, and then they won't actually be able to edit the footage in real time, or they're going to have to transcode into something else to use it. 
So if you manage to squeeze 8K into that, well, good luck editing your footage when you get it into the house, you know? Yeah, that's that's the other thing is they got to wait. You know, that's the thing is a a tug and pull. You got to wait for the computers to catch up. You got to wait for the TVs to catch up, you know? Now, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm I'm good. Oh, one thing interesting, um, AMD at uh, CES, uh, and this was yesterday, I believe, and this is kind of off topic again, but they were talking to AMD, and AMD demonstrated a native H.265 encoder-decoder chip that is being installed in their APUs. Their APUs are their graphic processor slash uh, CPU all on one chip. And with that extra H.265 processor that's decoding and encoding, that takes the load completely off of the CPU and GPU and handles it all in parallel with the GPU-CPU processing. So those, uh, I believe it's the Kepler uh, models. I might be wrong on that. Uh, Go look it up if you want to find out more. But basically, um, what's going on is that means you have six cores for editing, you have uh, three or four graphics units, and you have a parallel uh, H.265 processor that's handling encoding, decoding on the fly so that you're not beating the hell out of all the rest of your CPU units. And the chips themselves, the uh, H.265 encoders, they're pretty affordable for that single unit. Um, I think the IC price individually is in the 20 to $30 range. So that's why you're starting to see them pop into cameras is because the individual ICs aren't that much of an expense to upgrade a camera to. It's just waiting for the consumer-grade hardware to go along with that. And then, and then you know, but, you know, AMD, then you were talking about, I'm going to have to go back to IBM. Not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know you're, a, you're an IBM fan. I used to be. Not anymore. So are you Mac only? I'm, I'm Mac only. I have to have an IBM at the office. Well, I have one at each office, and, and I never use it. See, I I went the opposite way. For a while, I ran a recording studio when I was a lot younger, and uh, we used uh, Macintosh and then Hackintosh units to do all of our stuff because back then, uh, Pro Tools was everything. Like, there wasn't okay. any other choice for PCs. You had, what, I think Cakewalk back sonar. in the day. Yeah, Cakewalk and Sonar. That's but what I used. That was before Sonar was even a thing. That was when Cakewalk was like this horribly... <laughs> mediocre didn't have any plugins was barely was usable uh sonar it was even worse than that it was a completely midi device originally but yeah, yeah. Uh, sonar it, they've really stepped up the pace and it's uh, now it's a pretty well-formed editing suite and pro tools has moved over to windows and uh, mac based so you have the option but at that time we were using hackintoshes and macintoshes to do everything and as soon as I started using uh, PCs and the software started becoming available, it started with Rebirth. Then you had Ableton when it first started coming out. Uh, the early versions of Premiere, uh, Premiere um, uh, before it was Premiere Pro, it was Premiere 6, 6.5, you know, with that hideous horse logo that was running across the screen. But yeah. by the time they started uh, doing Premiere Pro uh, CS1, uh, it started to actually become a real tool. And by CS2 and CS3, it became a really good tool. And now we're sitting in the cloud versions where, you know, Adobe's kind of taken over the market in in a lot of these segments. Now, one of the articles on here is actually about uh, uh, Macs giving up on their uh, native photo editing programs. Um, Adobe is taking over with Lightroom and giving easy import for Aperture as well as iPhoto. 
those are two formerly well-used products for Mac users. And now it kind of looks like Lightroom's cornered the market. You can either use the one that comes with your camera or Lightroom, and that's about oh, it. I was so pissed about that. I'm so pissed about this right now because right when I heard they were getting rid of, you know, support of Aperture, I said, okay, we're transferring everything over. So we had to physically go and do it. Oh, it was really? A, oh, it was a pain in the butt. Imagine taking your whole library and transferring it out of there. It was just, it was a pain. It was, it was hours upon hours well, upon hours. Didn't um, Aperture, I'm not super familiar with Aperture, so correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't it kind of like hide it somewhere and not it really was, give you access to the directories so that it, you didn't it, screw anything up? And then when you, yeah, it, it, it's a, it was a big pain in the butt. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's the nicest way I can say it. But, you know, and I used to like, I, but see, I had already moved over to, I had kind of a dual system going. I would keep some stuff in Aperture, keep some stuff in Lightroom. Because I wasn't sure which one I liked better. Yeah, um, I do like Lightroom much better. Uh, Aperture is good for organizing. Yeah, uh, uh, Lightroom is better for everything else. Well, Lightroom's kind of a lot better with the import feature, as long as you enter in the metadata and all the information on your photos as you're importing them. It does a really good job about tracking, labeling, and putting into subfolders. If you get a little bit laxed about it, though. It will just throw them into a folder with a date and a number stamped on it, and, and then, then and you then have to go hard. find it, and it gets really hard. And I was lazy for the first two years I used Lightroom, and because of that, that generation of photos is painful to go through because you just have to dig through yeah. every single folder or folder until you find the photos you're looking for. It, it's a wonderful program if you take the time to set it up and do it right and put all the metadata and everything in there. Aperture was great because... It had this feature, um, which they actually use inside uh, Final Cut, it, face recognition, which was some of our stuff. That was what the beauty of it was. I would throw some of the work in there because then it would just put everything, everything that had this guy's face in it would go into that file. You oh, know, wow. I'd be able to pull it up. I'd be able to pull it up just by somebody's face. That's a pretty nice uh, feature. I didn't know that was available in Aperture. That's what, that's what, and the only thing is every time you put a photo in there, it would ask you, is this person, this person, you know, kind of got smart if I remember right, but it was, it was at least a good feature, um, and have the same thing in, uh, Final Cut Pro, but, uh, yeah, other than that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of upset that they took away Aperture, I don't, know, I don't think they're going to be coming out with anything else, you know, and, and quite honestly, Lightroom and Photoshop is much easier to use anyways. Well, one of the criminal things about uh, Aperture is they're still selling it. Um, it's still out and for sale on the market, and they've already announced that they're no longer going to support it. So uh, from what I understand, it's even a 32-bit version as opposed to 64-bit version, which is even more of a, what are they doing? Exactly. You know? I don't know. Yeah, Maybe they'll come up with something. I don't know. You know, it's, it's terrible because I do love my, my Macaverse for a lot of things. Um, it's very easy to transfer things. It, it just, everything works nice. It's the only thing I didn't like about the IBMs was I was tired of getting, you know, you can upgrade computers much easier. You can keep them relevant and up to date. Yeah. Instead of having to buy a new thing all the time, but there's the blue screen of death. <laughs> I don't run into that very much anymore. Um, anymore. It's not as bad now. No, maybe you'll convert me one day. I doubt it, but you could try. One of the things though, uh, I have uh, I work with a bunch of different editors, and they still uh, are in the Mac ecosystem. And when I go over there, I'm like, okay, here, let's move this over to this folder. And I cannot figure out how to do it. 
because with a PC, you're used to, you know, right-click, copy, or Control-C with shortcut commands and Control-V. And I'm trying to just move a picture from one file to another. And they're like, oh, you just click on the picture and drag it from this website over to here, and it copies over. Yeah. And you're like, what? And it's so easy that it actually becomes hard for PC hard, users yeah. because you're expecting to have to do all these steps or do these other things that are conducive to normal PC operation, whereas the Mac makes it easy, but it's so easy, easy it's hard. And it's probably the same, the opposite way. Like I went and tried to I go into that computer on the other side of the, the office there and, and tried to use Windows 8. And I'm sorry, I, I hate Windows 8. I miss 95, 98, something like that. But yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of... Now, on the operating uh, forefront, um, Windows 8 is a bit difficult to use. There are some uh, shell mods that you can do to it to bring it back to like the Windows 7 feel. But I've been running the um, uh, developer version of the newest Windows, Windows 10 or Windows 1, whatever they're going to end up calling really? it. And that one, it harkens back to basically um, that style of of use. They've still kept the the whole charm square thing, but they've added it to the same corner windows click that you're used to in all of your normal stuff. So instead of having an entirely different screen that's dedicated to sort of a touch interface, this puts those squares inside of that corner menu and you have your same file drop downs and all the other stuff, but you also have those. So if there's things that you want to pin to that and use on a regular basis, it's sort of like pinning stuff to the, start bar or uh, in a max case on the that top bar or bottom bar wherever you have it placed on your screen well, maybe they'll get me using it a little bit more then. yeah i think um i think people will be pleasantly surprised i've been uh running it on a demo machine that i have laying around the studio uh just for basic internet surfing and stuff like that and it's been a pretty enjoyable experience so far i i'm not upset with it and the installation it is by far the smoothest Windows installation I have ever done. I, you know, I stuck the disk in, maybe hit one button, and everything else was done by the time I walked back. It had even gone online by itself and downloaded all the update drivers for all the hardware in that case and, like, taking care of it for me. Oh, that was the problem before, drivers. Well, you know, they're doing that. That's great. Because I, I, other than that, I mean, you know, I, I, I edit on Premiere and Final Cut. And the only reason I use Premiere is just in case I ever go back. Oh, so that you're familiar with the setup and all yeah. the new tools and everything? Because I've never, I've never used Avid. I've, I used to use Sony Vegas a long time ago, and then I went to Premiere and then Final Cut. Well, now that we're kind of off topic a little bit, um, on the video editing front, one of the things that's great about Sony Vegas, if you have an audio background, is that Sony Vegas is set up very similar to like a Pro Tools or a uh, Sonar setting where like if you need to, you know, crossfade or something like that, you could just draw across your tracks. And it has that sort of multi-track feel like you get out of a audio recording setup. And that was what was really enjoyable when I first started using uh, Sony Vegas. And I used that for a little while simply because of the original problems with AVC-HD. Uh, originally when that came out, they were the first to support it and nothing else really handled it natively. And it took a little while for Premiere to catch up. Once Premiere started taking over uh, and supporting more codecs, I moved almost 100% to the Premiere camp and I haven't really looked back. Um, I pay for my subscription every year and it's not too bad. 
You mean the Adobe subscription? Yeah. Oh, it's I, a wonderful thing. I mean, it's, I, I was one of the ones that got hacked. Oh, no. So they paid for my, uh, you know, what, what is that? The credit check or whatever it yeah. is. And that was kind of a pain in the butt. But you know what? For, I originally had it for 49 I think it was. Yeah. For the whole suite. And uh, for that price, you really can't. You can't. I mean, people complain about it, but you know what? If you're going to be working in this profession, or you're going to be doing anything professionally, you got to kind of you got you have to kind of keep up on the software and learn how to use the tools because everybody else is using them. And if you have to collaborate with somebody, someday you're going to run into someone who wants you to hand them files back and forth. And if you don't have Premiere, you're not going to be working with them most likely. And if you're and if you're stuck buying the full version every year. What, oh. what, what premiere it's alone was what a thousand bucks I yeah i think if you got the master's collection it was like 1500 or 2000 depending on what sale was going on and then if you own the previous copy i think they gave you a, a reduction in price and it was still like 800 dollars or, or something like that yeah um, i mean so the subscription thing to me was wonderful one pro tip for everybody out there especially if you're on a budget is wait till after school starts and find a student because if you have a friend that's a student that has a student id you can go on Amazon, and they have uh, the cloud subscription on sale a lot of times for 190 bucks for students for the entire year. So that's like 16 bucks a month, and they're stackable. And I, you know, I know this is a little bit shady, so make sure you know them really well, or you maybe if it's your wife or something. Have like some that. kids, yeah, have or have some, some kids, kids exactly. <laughs> but if you do that, they're stackable, so you can buy um, three or four years worth of it. And it just adds time to your account. So then you can have four years worth of Adobe Cloud for, you know, 16 or $15 a month. And then it's hard to argue with. At $15 a month, you know, give up three coffees and a meal out and you've paid exactly. for your, your cloud subscription, especially if it's are, making you money. And you are up to date on everything. I know. And, you know, there's tools. They issue new tools so fast that... I haven't even had a chance to get a whole or to start using some of them. There's some new sharpening stuff in After Effects that I haven't played around with yet that I've heard really good things about. And there's some new features in uh, Photoshop that I haven't really got a chance to mess around with. This Adobe Camera Raw business we were talking about earlier, that's uh, um, specific to the latest CC update. So yeah. if you don't have Adobe CC, you're kind of out of the loop. You might be able to find a, you know, uh, illegitimate copy online, but even that's going to be a couple of generations behind the latest update. Yep. And so it might and not it, even be worth that. If you have this subscription, if you, if you have this subscription, you get everything right away. It's much better. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I have no arguments there. Okay. I'm moving on down the line. You're a Mac user. So this isn't as applicable to you because you probably use, uh, Apple panels, but, uh, Seiki is a, kind of middle-of-the-line uh, Chinese company that mm -hmm. makes 4K panels. Uh, their big claim to fame was in uh, 2014, they had a bunch of 4K 30 hertz uh, editing panels that were for sale on Amazon in the 300 to $600 range. And they were the very first affordable 4K panels. Well, in the first quarter of 2015, it looks like they're going to be starting to release uh, 4K panels that are 60 hertz, and they're using VA technology instead of TN technology, which means it's pretty close to IPS display quality. And mm -hmm. they're talking prices in the range of six ninety nine retail suggested list price, which could end up being more like 500 and some change by the time they settle in. 
Uh, would you go to a 4K panel? Are you working on one right now? Uh, I don't. I don't have a 4K panel. I do have the 5K one coming in. Ooh. The iMac. The iMac. I I got one of those coming down. Uh, the new iMac. Uh, but I want to. I'm going to be ordering also one of the uh, Mac Pro. Uh, the little tower. Oh, the trash can. Yeah, the trash can. And uh, I want a little more. I don't do a lot of FX, so I'm, I want to start doing a little bit more of that. So I want to get that power in there. This would be an awesome thing if they work right. I mean, 40-inch, a 40-inch monitor, how can you complain about that? That's a sweet spot for me. I've been editing on a 4K panel right now for the last year, and I have one of the Samsung 60 hertz panels, but it's 28 inches. And 28 inches is just too small for 4K. Okay, it's just too small. Yeah, you know, it, it sounds funny hearing you say that because 28 inches a couple years ago was, was like, huge. Yes. Well, right now, um, as I'm talking to you, the panel in front of me is a 2560 by 1440 uh, 28-inch panel. And that's about as much resolution as I would want on a 28-inch dense panel. Um, You get any uh, higher DPI than that, and text and everything else starts to get so small that it's hard to read. Um, I've got my uh, magnification on my 4K panel set to 150%, so I can actually read text on the screen. And if a program doesn't recognize it, I have to put my glasses on and put my face close to the monitor to figure out what it says. If I had your eyes. if I had a 40-inch panel, that's relatively the same DPI as you get out of some of the higher-end um, uh, 24-inch uh, 1080p screens. And mm-hmm. so that's enough that I can read everything just fine from a distance, and I still have all the screen real estate without having the bezel in the middle. So then you put your 1080p window up in the corner – you got your timeline down in the bottom, you got your effects on the side, and you still have enough room for your preview window, and you don't have to have a second screen. You don't have to have, that's a, that's a nice thing too, because, I mean, for some things you need a second screen, but with this you wouldn't really need it. 40-inch would be great. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping for with these Seiki panels, because they had a 39-inch and a, I believe a 42-inch variant in their last round. Um, the 28 inches that were released in 2014 from some of the other places like uh, Asus and Samsung, they're just not big enough. And so I'm really excited for a 40-inch um, IPS-ish screen in a under $1,000 price range. Well, you know, I had a company ask me about something recently, and I have to find out about it. And it's just a whim, the owner of the company. He wants to find out about these these stretched monitors. Oh, the, the uh, 21 by 9 aspect ratio curved they're units? Like, they're like curved units. And I, 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 I've got to find one and order one to see what it's like. But I, I think it's just a gimmick more than useful well where they come in handy uh is actually for gaming the uh 21 by 9 aspect ratio is is designed to be almost peripheral vision all the way across and then if it's curved it's even more so because by curving it they're going right to the edge of where you can see on both sides so by having a curved 21 by 9 34 inch panel uh, you're basically able to fully submerse yourself into like a first person shooter for example and see everything around you for editing the curved screen, I don't really see it being a huge uh, boon, but for gaming, More of a gaming, it's really cool. And for uh, maybe even for submersi- uh, submersive video watching, like if you're watching a film in that aspect ratio, you're kind of in the film. So maybe if it's from a first person perspective, there might be some kind of uh, niche market for that. Uh, the 34 inch panels that uh, I believe HP sells one 
and uh, Dell sells one, and they're both uh, that 21 by 9 aspect ratio. And I think HP has the wraparound version that you were speaking of with the curved yeah. panel. Um, the the flat panels, the non-curved ones, I've talked to a few editors that are really excited about that because they want to have an extremely long timeline on the bottom of their screen. Yeah, I usually just use the plus minus keys and, and expand my timeline out as I'm working on sections, and I break it down into different sequences so that I never have more than a 10 minute clip that I'm working on, you know, yes. in a group. I do the same thing. Cause it takes forever to, yeah. And then you just, uh, number your sequences in order. So that way, when you're putting the whole thing together, you just put each of your edits together and throw your transitions in on the final uh, line. And that's how I work. But I've talked to people that are really excited about having all of the timeline, you know, maybe if they're working on a 15 minute project, having that completely stretched out and all the way across a 34 inch screen. So Maybe it's a thing, and it's just not my thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm, I'm going to have to find it out for him, so we'll see. Well, the, uh, on to the discussion topics here. We've already covered the GH5 uh, rumors. Um, I did get a new laptop, and it's a Windows laptop as well, and a 4K panel. But that falls into the 4K problem again. It's a 15-inch monitor with 4K, so that is extreme pixel density. It's really crisp and it looks really nice, but it kind of falls into that same category. I'm kind of wishing I would have gone with the 3K variant instead of the 4K variant. Just, Wait, so you need magnifiers to read the screen? Yeah, right? I'm going to have to start using like uh, a jeweler's eyepiece or something like that. <laughs> but what's on this? Now, I will say that editing photos on a 4K panel, that is the one thing that I find fantastic. Because you can almost blow up a 60 megapixel image to 100% and fill the screen without having to, you know, zoom in and zoom out. So if you if you're printing something for example and you do need that kind of resolution, you can see the edges of stuff, you can see the grain, you can see what your desharpening is doing to your image, you can see what your contrast is doing to the colors and to everything else. And that part is pretty nice. I I do enjoy editing photos on a 4K panel. And your that 5K not, will probably be the same way. I don't know on that. Only thing I know is I I know that the difference from when I went from the non-retina screen to a retina screen to see the difference on that. Yeah. It was great for when I was looking at my photos, but I, yeah, we'll see on this new 5k screen. I, I know that I enjoyed having the other screen, so we'll see. Eh. But as far as that goes, so everything is kind of shrunken down. You're saying. Yeah. Um, it's so small on the laptop that I have to magnify all the icons to about 200%. But when you're zooming in, you can really zoom in before you start seeing the, the, the grain, not the pixel before it starts pixelizing. Yeah, you can actually you can do one to one on the screen, and that's the part. Even on a, a sixteen inch or fifteen inch monitor, pictures really pop because when you're able to see them in full sixteen megapixel without zooming in or zooming out or or what have you, you're not degrading the image at all. You're looking at the image exactly as it was taking or taken, and with the, even with the pixel density, it's like looking at a really good print of something. And so that part is really sexy. And on the 28-inch monitor, it's the same way. Having 28 inches to work on means I can put a full uh, image up. And since I'm not reading text, I don't have to worry about the quality of my eyes. I just want them to be good enough to see what's on the image and look at everything and do my edits and whatnot. So if you're doing touch-ups and stuff, especially if it, you know I don't do print, but if you're doing print, having a 4K monitor and being able to see it at that resolution, if you screw up on a touch-up, it's going to be noticeable on a magazine print, but it might not be noticeable on a you know 610 by 460 uh, image on the internet. So that could be useful for people who are doing like layouts and stuff like that. 
Yeah, for print, yeah. Um, okay, looking at, before we get off the laptop subject, that thing is only two grand, so it is a lot cheaper than um, your Mac offerings. What's the the base <laughs> model for a, a darn MacBook Pro? Isn't it like three grand? Uh, no, it's, you know, it's around 2,500. A base, okay, my MacBook Pro, okay, by the time you put 16 gigabytes of RAM in there, you're around 2,500. Wow. But it screams, man. It screams. This thing uh, also screams, it's not quite as sexy as the uh, MacBook Pro. I will give you that one right out of the gate. Um, one of the things that Apple does is they make things sleek, and yeah. everybody tries to copy, but no one quite pulls it off. Uh, this thing is small and skinny, but it's not quite, well, it's not nearly as sleek as anything uh, Apple has to offer. The Apple's nice and light to take around. You know, here's, 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 here's the only good things about Apple. Nice and light to take around. Yeah. You don't have to worry. Everything's configured nicely. Uh, everything works nicely. It comes with a lot of st- starting software. If, if, I was to, if anybody was to start uh, videography or photography, I'd tell them to get a Mac only because it comes with decent editing stuff off the bat. You don't have to pay for any programs. Yeah. I know people that use iMovie professionally. iMovie uh, professionally? Professionally, yes. Um, you know, as long as they don't tell their friends, I suppose it's okay. Yeah, I mean, especially you could do it for a lot of things. I mean, you could, you if you made if you made documentaries, you probably get away with iMovie. Period. Well, and if you're just cutting clips together, there are exactly. tons of uh, bottom rung applications that'll do that. And, and quite honestly, I've used it in the past just to cut clips while I was away, and then put it back together when I get home. Yeah. But you know, but you know, the only thing is, I will say is, an IBM laptop. They are nice. Well, the PC laptop, PC laptops. The, they are nice. The issue I've been running into with a, a lot of Mac users I've been talking to lately is the CUDA support for Premiere. Um, Apple has chosen not to go with any NVIDIA graphics cards, so the only yeah. thing you have is OpenGL. And yeah. while OpenGL, they're starting to support it more and more. It's still probably about um, only fifty percent or seventy-five percent of what CUDA support is. So do you notice the missing out on rendering times and uh, some of the uh, uh, live effects that are GPU rendered on your Mac, or do you do enough of that to have it be an issue? I don't, I don't really probably do enough of it to be an issue, A. And also, I really don't use Premiere as much as I have to. I mean, I, I, I use I, – I'm sorry, I use Final Cut Pro 90% of the time. Oh, and that, and that isn't really uh, GPU accelerated, is it? And and well, and, you know, and 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 I just do that now. Two years ago, a year ago, I would have been using Premiere, uh, even though I had the both of them because they had so many mistakes and so many. It would take it would take three times longer to render anything in Final Cut Pro than it did in Premiere. Have they fixed all the issues that uh, much. were in X? Pretty much. That's Pretty good much. to hear, but it seems like enough editors moved away that it might be Take a death a nail for it. Yeah, it's I. There's a lot of them moving back. The, you know what? A lot of people are reminiscent of oh, Final Cut. What was it? Seven. Yeah, like seven Final was Cut a seven. really popular. Um, yeah, editing they, they all remember that, and they always give it a little. They always give it a little chance, and it's and it's it's really easy. I mean, I, I use both of them. And they're both really easy. I mean, not really easy. They're both enjoyable to use, but it's a little easier. Well, and I, I got that from a lot of, of uh, 
cable editors that do cable news that I've talked to, they say that seven was really intuitive and really simple to get around in. And they find that uh, Premiere, because of the hot keys and everything else, is a little bit more difficult. Well, quite a bit more difficult than working in the Apple universe. So, yeah, maybe that's like a another PC versus uh, Mac. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's both good. You know what I say? If you're going to do a lot of uh, a lot of grading, a lot of effects, then you're in Premiere because you've got that whole suite of things to use. Well, now uh, talking yeah. about cheaper editors here. I did work with a full-time editor for a little while that still used uh, Premiere Elements. And yeah, I know. I can see your <laughs> face, and that's the face I made when I was like, you use what? Excuse me? And up until Premiere, um, I believe, 4 or 5, it was native support for uh, Premiere Elements files. So he would turn an edit into me in Premiere Elements, and I would be able to seamlessly import it into my timeline and work on it in Premiere Pro. So I never actually got upset with him or ran him under the bus for it. But as of Adobe CC, they no longer support the complete smooth transfer from Elements to Premiere Pro. So now you're in this like kind of crappy environment where you can't use it anymore. I finally had to break down and buy him a copy of you know, of uh, a premiere six. So at least we had something to like work on the same page with when I, when I have to work with him, but I was actually kind of disappointed because that was a stepping stone for people who were working with elements and then moving up to premiere, all their files would be backwards compatible and supported as they move into the higher levels of editing. And, and that's, that's, that's the only thing that scares me about Adobe is they could just turn off support for something in a given day. Yeah. Imagine, Imagine with you, all your – that's why whenever I take anything out of my camera, I make one copy that goes uh, original files. Yeah. And I have one that's DNG. I'm afraid one day DNG won't be covered. I, am, I'm, I'm, I know I'm weird. See, I'm actually the other way. I, I'm afraid that an old camera raw format will be discontinued. So I transcode everything to DNG, and I only use DNG for everything because DNG is an open, open codec. So with Canon's format and uh, Nikon's uh, NRAW or whatever it's called, um, they're specific to the camera and the manufacturer, but DNG's not specific to anybody. So I don't see, them, I don't see anybody getting rid of support for DNG. I, mean, I could be wrong. Maybe there's another angle to I it that I don't see. Wrong, but, I don't think you're wrong, but I'm still – I don't trust anybody. But I run into issues like um, a lot of times I'm on the on the head of, or right at the edge of the curve for new cameras. Um, I had the 6D right when it came out. I had the 5D Mark III right when it came out. GH4. I had an early release model that I got before everybody else. Those cameras had new codecs, and you couldn't actually use them in uh, Lightroom right. until you know three months or two months after the cameras release. They're, they're a little quicker on it now because I had the uh, A7S about two weeks before it was released. Yeah. And I had the A7 II about two weeks before it was released. And, yeah, I was sitting there and all I could do was shoot JPEGs. Yeah. And that's awful. <laughs> I mean, it is. It isn't, but it is, you know. I mean, JPEGs, a JPEG is like shooting back in the 80s with film. Yeah. Got to get it right in the camera. Well, and I do know quite a number of photographers that they're not professional most of the time, so they just shoot JPEG. And if you're 
you know, just posting to Instagram or, you know, your favorite uh, photo sharing app, then I suppose JPEG isn't that big a deal, but I don't, I usually shame people when they are just JPEG shooters. Only shoot raw, come on. I know, I, I, well, okay, one thing I I did do for a while, um, when I got the 60, it was three months before they started supporting raw files, so I shot raw plus JPEG. And the reason was is because I wanted to freaking use my photos for stuff. And sure, I wasn't able to correct them nearly as much, but at least I could look at them until <laughs> such time as the RAW was supported, and then I imported them all into Lightroom. But I no, mean, no, you're you're not a photographer. You don't shoot RAW. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. There's a big, a big I, disconnect. I, I there. kid you. I kid you. I bet. I kid you. Um, okay, last thing, uh, we've covered quite a bit, actually, and we're pushing an hour 16 now. So let's move over to pick of the week. What do you got? Uh, let's see. You know, I have two things. Can I use two, or do you want me to just do one? All right, go ahead, do two. All right, for anybody that needs a rig, I have this thing, it's by Small Rig, and it's for the A7S, and they make them for every camera. But the beauty about it for the A7S is it has the support for the multi-shoe. Okay. It's only a half rig, so it uses half the camera, so you can still hold it like a – you can still hold the camera in your hand and grip it. Um, and it has the best handle I've seen on a rig. It has a bunch of quarter uh, – it has 3 eighths and quarter 20s on it, and it is able to go forward and backward very easily. So you, you can, can slide balance it across it your camera? Yeah, and then you can take it off, and you can you can go forward, backwards with it. It's a wonderful thing. I wish we had video so people could see it, and it has a hot shoe on top. This is my favorite handle. I will. I, I'm going to buy five more of these handles for everything else I have. Um, is it that easy and, to adapt to other items, or? Yeah, because you can. It yes, it is, and the I just it's it's wonderful, and they have different connectors for it. It's one of the best handles I've ever seen. And the small rig is, uh, for the A7S, a nice little rig. It's a half rig. It gives you access to the battery, everything. It has a little place where you can clamp on for uh, uh, your, your HDMI cables, your audio cables, video cables. Um, about 136 bucks. Yeah, I'm looking at the price right now. The base model, that's pretty sexy. It's uh, $99 for the base box and then uh, an extra 30 or 40 bucks for the handle and a few other bits and, and pieces. A, and they have a ton of different handles there you can choose from. It's, it's, it's for somebody that's on a budget, it's a great thing for somebody that's not on a budget that doesn't want a full rig. I know you, you have a different one and you're probably going to talk about it, but this is a nice one for a half rig. And for somebody that just wants something light to go around with, love it. The second pick of the week is the a seven Mark two in body image stabilization, full frame. Your prime lenses are now stabilized. This is a photo and video guy's dream. Not quite as good as a um, Olympus OMD M1 as far as the stabilization goes. But then again, on that one, you don't have the video codecs you do on the Sony. You know, I'm looking at the um, small rig uh, website right now, and they have one of my favorite style of monitor mounts. The same one that a lot of people use for EVFs, but it's that uh, rocker format with yes. uh, the extender that you can slide up and down. It was the same yep. one that was used in the, um, uh, I think they're called the Omicron, something Cron, Elder Cron. 
Elder Cron. Yeah, oh, yeah, they've yeah, changed Elder their Cron, name yes. a couple of times. So Elder Cron, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Elder Cron, Elder Cron. It was the same one that was used in their original rigs, that kind of rocking back and forth flat plate system. I always yep. really enjoyed that. And I'm looking here on small rig, and these are $65 to $109. I may have to pull the trigger on one of these just to play <laughs> around with it because... And, and I'm going to tell you something. You know what? If you're going to buy something from them, I would probably go to Newegg and buy it from the Newegg site. Oh, so that way you get it uh, with a little bit of protection. Yeah, and then also you don't have to pay. You don't have to worry about any import taxes, just in case, because these things come from China. You know, everything yeah. comes from China. Now. Um, and and you know what it looks like to me if you look, go look at wooden camera. Like they might have cloned some of their stuff. A lot of it looks like the same stuff. Yeah, I'm, uh, the yeah. only problem you have to be careful with for that is that uh, some of the Chinese manufacturers that clone wooden camera and some of the other ones. They use yeah. uh, cheaper alloys, and there have been reports of some of the uh, um, Red Rock micro clones um, snapping and breaking under heavy loads. So, uh, I wouldn't put a heavy, heavy load on this, but man, I could pull on this sucker and it's not moving at all. Yeah, these rigs look pretty sexy, and I'm looking on Newegg right now, and it looks like they also sell a wide variety of quarter twenty um, little adapters, cold shoes, yep. and everything else. Man. I'm going to have to give this a, a go. I think you've sold me on this one. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is, is that uh, on these, on these, uh, yeah, they have a bunch of different mounts. It's, it's great. I, I, I really like it. And if you go to that, uh, that small rig, if you have an idea and you give them the idea and they use it, they send you it for free. Oh, nice. That's a pretty interesting way to push innovation forward. Yeah, I don't know if you, yeah, Exactly. Uh, those are my two picks. Now, my pick's actually an older one, but a good one. And I still have a few of these in the studio uh, because I completely enjoy using them. Small HD's DP6. It's no longer in production on their site, but these things are selling on eBay for around three to $400. Uh, that's a very nice uh, 1080p screen for a very affordable price. And compared to the five or six hundred dollars that you're looking at for their DP7 models, um, there's not a huge jump in quality difference between the DP6 and the DP7. And the DP6 is a bit smaller, and in my opinion, a little bit better constructed than the uh, newer versions. Yeah, and maybe I'm wrong. I you know that one could be debated, but their used price it makes them very attractive. So and they're you... quality product. Oh yeah. Um, they still even release uh, patches for the DP6 and DP4 because both of them run the same uh, processor unit. So you can still get updates for the DP6 as you continue forward. And uh, they still sell all the accessories on uh, Small HD's website. So if you need the sun hood or the screen protector or you need to adapt to a different battery, those are all still available. Um, going on to eBay, though, if you keep an eye out for those, the DP6 can be had for an extremely affordable price. And that is a very nice monitor for uh, under $500. Yes. And that's, I, that's it for me. Uh, you got any, um, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, right now, uh, I got to make something up. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really put anything on because I'm under contract on a lot of things, so I don't really have my own stuff. But uh, you know what? Hey, if we if we work together, we'll get something up there, okay? Hey, no problem. I have the same thing. When I shoot corporate videos, I'm not allowed to do anything with them besides turn them over. And it's like, hey, show me your portfolio. Well, I can show you this, but you cannot have a copy. 
but I am going to be working on a documentary this year and we'll get that up there. Oh, nice. All right. Well, uh, that's been an episode of DSLRFilmNoob.com podcast. Uh, next week, we'll be covering some more lenses for the GH4 as well as the uh, Sony adapter. I think I'm getting some Minolta lenses in to play around with. So we'll be testing your autofocus that you were talking about. And that concludes the show. All right, um, we're coming back with a little bit of post-show lens discussion here. Uh, This is kind of extra quality material for you guys. So we were talking about the Sony E-mount lenses now, and um, the discussion starts off with the 16 to, what is it, 50? 16 to 35. 16 to 35, and this is an F4. Um, When are we going to start seeing F2.8? Because I've kind of been disappointed with the current E-mount selection. Well, you're going to see a few this year. I, I know that from talking to some people. And there's a couple that they may release without any knowledge. We're going to see. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is on the A7S, because of the low light sensitivity, all right, when you're shooting with your Canon, how often are you shooting at 2.8? Uh, depends on the subject matter. A lot of times it's five, six or four if I'm moving around or there's a lot of motion in the scene. If I'm just shooting something and there's a bland background, sometimes I'll go prime and go wide open. So yeah, that's so kind of my bounce sh- back and forth. When, when, when somebody, if you're shooting, if you're shooting an uh, interview, yeah, you can go 2.8, you can go 1.8. You can go oh, yeah. 1.4, maybe. Nah, not 1.4 because if they move forward or back. And then their nose is out of focus. Exactly. But 90% of the time, and I heard Philip Bloom talk about this, uh, 90% of the time you're going to be shooting at F4, F5 if you're trying to pull focus. It is a pain in the butt if somebody is moving at all to pull focus at 2.8, even if you have a focus puller. So when they're talking about that, for, for as far as movie, go, movie makers or filmers, F4 is not a bad starting point with this camera. Now, because with the uh, motor included in these E-mount lenses, because it's obviously it's not driven by the body like the uh, other ones, how does yeah. that feel uh, for focusing and also for the fly-by-wire system? Okay, the fly-by-wire system. Okay, my favorite lens to shoot photos with so far, out of any lens I've ever owned, is this 55 1.8. Really? F1.8? I, I never liked a 50. I, didn't, I always liked a 90. 85, uh, 105, uh, even a 35. Never liked 50 until I got this one. Love it. For video, the fly-by-wire sucks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't, if you, you, you've got to be very consistent on your, your, on your movement. If you try to you know, whip it, it's never going to – you can't use – you can't mark it. Okay? This, the, F, uh, the 16 to 35 seems a little bit better. But on these flyby wires, that's the biggest complaint I have with the Sony. Is a flyby wire is not as good as uh, your Panasonic. It's flyby wire, isn't it? Uh, some of the lenses are. Some of them aren't. Um, the two point eight. Oh, you don't have the two point eight. You don't. They have, have this... a two point eight. Uh, uh, I believe it's the twelve to thirty five. You don't have forty. That I have. Well, no, the twelve to thirty five is Panasonic's version, and that one is flyby wire. But the Olympus is what I ended up going with. And that's the uh, 12 to 40 millimeter F2.8. And yeah. that has the click lock system. So okay. you can unclick and it's uh, fully auto. You click it in and then you're gear driven. And it has hard stops on both sides. 
So you can mark and focus and have no issue with that. Some of their uh, primes are fly-by-wire and you can continuously spend all the way around. And some of them have hard stops on them as well. It kind of depends on who makes the glass, how expensive it is, and what class of lens it is. So um, it kind of goes throughout the spectrum. Yeah. And then when you, the other thing is you got to think about if you're shooting micro four thirds, you're shooting, what is it? Uh, 4K, you're at 2.3 times, right? Uh, Yeah. 2.3 is your crop. Now, that's not just for your focal, that's your focal length or angle, but that's also your, your depth of field. Yeah, that's correct. So if you're shooting at f2.8, um, you're getting as much light as you would with f2.8, but instead of getting the same amount of stuff in focus, okay. you're, you're doubling it or double uh, 2.3 times, basically. So whatever that works out to. So it's like f5.6 6. 6 or something like that. at uh, six, Yeah, 5.6 at... Five six at two point oh, so you're at six point one, six point two. Yeah, and so you don't have any focus issues at all, really running around at f two eight or above. And that's why when I hear people complain about the f four on the the Sony's f four is still better than what they're getting on pretty much any lens on the Micro Four Thirds. And I'm a Micro Four Thirds fan, so don't think I'm not. I'm, I'm fanboying it out there. So f four is not that bad. And the thing is, I'm noticing with these Sony lenses at f four. They're as sharp as other lens stopped down to F4. Yeah. Well, F4, it's pretty easy to be sharp in the original design to begin with. So you don't have to worry about, you know, going wide open with that extra bit of glass around the corners and things like that. You try that Canon one. What is that? The 20, 24 to 105. It's not too sharp at F4. Uh, it cleans up about 5.6. I haven't had too many issues with it, but. Well, for um, filming, you know, for filming, it's easier than photos. Yeah, that's true. I'm not going to debate the sharpness of the 24 to 105 simply because I haven't really like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good, uh, entry level L, L lens. So it yeah. is what it is. Your, your, um, 16 to 35 F four though. That's like uh what? $800 new $900 new. It's like 13, 13. Yeah. So compared to the 24 to 105, which is a 500 or $600 lens new. Yeah, you're right. So right. But you know, when I take, when I take this F four, when I take this over and, and compare it to the Nikon and Canon, Canon equivalent, yeah, it's it's really comparable. It's really comparable. It's really good. The only thing I will say is on these on these Sony lenses, the twenty four to seventy, yeah, you might as well just get the twenty eight to seventy. Oh, the Minolta. No, no, on on the Sony lenses, on the the Sony the kit lens. Oh yeah, oh. that comes with it. Um, the twenty four to seventy Zeiss lens. That's a thousand bucks you're better off just buying the $400 kit lens. Really? Kit lens. really? Yeah. Um, you're not going to see any difference in video. Huh. You're going to get, you're going to lose four, you're going to lose the four points the, from 24 to 28 on the wide end. Yeah. But on video, you have that. And then there again, you're going to also lose the constant aperture. But if you're going to shoot at five, six, you can shoot at five, six through the whole thing. I wouldn't even spend the money on the 24 to 70. It's not worth it. See, now I'm actually looking at the uh, Minolta 28 to 70 F2.8 and that yeah. adapter because I have the adapter in the studio right now. And the Minolta is only a $350 or $400 lens. And so for that price, I played around with um, a couple of Minolta lenses with autofocus in the shop with that adapter. And it seemed about as fast as the native E mount lenses, especially the 51.4. It was really fast moving forward and backwards. And somebody was telling me that they think that's a just that Sony just rebranded it for their A mount series. So yeah. 
It's an, and, I, and I think it's, well, I, I always thought the 20, 28 to 70, was it 28 to 75, right? Two point. Uh, no, I think it's uh, 28 one. to 70. Oh, I don't know about the Sony, but the Minolta was a 28 to 70. The Minolta? Okay. Yeah, I, I, the, the, was it Tamron? Yeah, Tamron makes the uh, 24 to 70. And that's a pretty good lens as well. I use that on my Canon and have had no complaints with it, but it's a thousand dollars. No, without the without the the uh, without the image stabilization, you can pick up one for like four hundred bucks. Oh yeah, you're talking about the older version. The older yeah, version. That one has a really different good. focal length um, for their uh, full frame. Their their uh, crop sensor version was like a, a seventeen to something like that, and that yeah. one ha- I think that one does have image stabilization, and it's a lot cheaper. The middle one is that twenty eight to seventy five. Seventy five, yeah, two point eight. And I had that one. The only thing is, well, not the only thing, but one of the things is that it's it's pretty flimsily built. Tamron okay. and Sigma have come a long ways in their lens quality, but that is not an example of it. Um, that particular model was super light and super skinny compared to the new 24 to 70, but uh, you got a lot of barrel flex. It breathed horribly, so if you were focusing, it would you know, lose its position as soon as you moved it a little bit or wiggled it around. Okay. Uh, it is really affordable, but I don't know. The Minoltas that I've touched, they felt like solid pieces of gear. Um, they didn't feel like plasticky kind of, you know, mid middle of the line. Maybe I'm I'm thinking wrong on the Minoltas, but the ones I've touched felt pretty solid. No, the Minoltas are solid, and and the one the one lens that everybody's telling me to try out, and I haven't had a chance to look at one. Maybe you have. Is the Sigma twenty four to one hundred five? I have not played with that yet, but their art series, I believe that's an F4 or 0. F4. Yeah, that one yeah. Uh, supposedly vests the uh, 24 to 105 from Canon um, by a decent margin, and then it has better color uh, reproduction and more I contrast. Was hoping you had, I was hoping you had played with it to get an opinion because I've, I've been told by everybody to grab one of those and that adapter. I'm sitting in the same boat, man. I've touched one at NAB, but that's it. I have not done enough work with one to like be an expert, but uh, the people I've talked to have told me, oh, man, it's really good. You should try it. And because I already own the uh, the 24 to 105, I've kind of just been hesitant to, to you know, go buy another 24 to 105. Yeah. And you're probably in the same boat as I am. In your town, you only have one camera shop. I have zero any- camera shops, you're zero. Man. I have one and they don't like you to touch anything. And, and I buy a ton of stuff from them unless the Sony guys give me something and, and they still won't let me, uh, you know, they don't like you touching nothing. So yeah, I'd like to try it. I don't know if I want to spend the money on it because it's not a, a native lens. You know, when I'm in New York, I usually swing into Adorama or the B and H shop and play with stuff. Or if I'm in California in Sammy's, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, a lot of the the weird thing about California is a lot of the pawn shops have really high end stuff and the yeah, pawn shops are not upset with you playing with the kit. So, like, as long as you're not abusing it and running around the store and, you know, you know, knocking it and stuff like that. I'll have to try that. I'd never thought of that. Never the pawn shops are like, hey, oh, uh, yeah, you want to mess with this? And especially Minolta glass. Um, I found three or four uh, pieces of kit at the pawn shops. I was at. I had to go to two of them, but. Still, there was enough to get my hands on it and play around with it for an hour or two and decide, you know, if I was really even interested in going the Minolta route for the Sony a7S. I've been pretty disappointed because I have one of those Canon adapters. You know, it's okay for filming, but for shooting stills in between shoots and stuff like that, 
the autofocus to the Canon lenses is awful. No, it, you might as well just mind your focus. Yep, exactly. You're you're going back like ten generations in in focus speed. It's not good at all. So and I I, I had a lot of problems with it. I had the three version three. Yeah. And I got rid of it. And then I hear uh, I hear uh, M over M has version four, and he's having problems with it. And and you got to restart your camera all the time. Yeah, mine will error out on occasion. They're not an optimal solution for no. the A7S. And and the little the little the little time I've had with LEE A4, you're not gonna have any of those problems. And it's a good focusing thing, except you're gonna have like it's, I think it's one cross type in the middle. Everything's gonna be focusing in the middle. Yeah, and that's how I'm. I'm used to doing that anyway. Uh, when I worked with, with the sixty, yeah, thing. well, with the sixty, you only really use the middle. But also, when I was a, a 5D Mark II shooter, you really only use the center. Okay. Um, I'm kind of gotten spoiled a little bit with the Mark III, where you can set like those kind of um, egg shaped zones to do stuff. But honestly, I still kind of just point focus with the center and then frame. And I've gotten yeah. so used to that Composed, that yeah. that would be completely fine for me with the uh, Sony. I just want to be able to shoot stills with it. And that's the other weird thing is uh, shooting stills with it. Like I'm so used to Canon that I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I put my eye too close and the screen shuts off or I – That I don't like. You know, that and there's like. stuff like that. And Or if you're holding – if you're filming and you're holding the screen down and you flip it up, you flip it up like that. Yep. And you get it too close to your body, you're trying to you – know, if you're hand-holding. You're trying to pull it in, right? Mm-hmm. Get, get a nice thing, and it'll flip off on you. Yeah, I th- I've had that problem as well with the GH4. There's a way to uh, set it up in the GH4 so that it, you can make it's it only feature. use the screen. But well, you can sit back and forth right on the on the. Side yeah, there's the button on the side, so you set it to only use whatever it's on, and then you just use that button, the f- like F5 button or whatever, to change there's it. There's nothing on that. There's nothing on. Yeah, the I haven't found anything yet on the A7S. And oh, there is. There's no way to do it. And then the, that's the other big complaint that while we're, you know, complaining about the A7S is the freaking <laughs> menu system on that thing is, is all over the place. Like there's, there's a setting in there that you could turn on and I suggest everybody does this. It's um, a deal that has like a little descriptor that goes across the top that tells you what every setting is. If you don't have that on, you're kind of like shooting in the dark to figure out like, what does this mean? What you does could this read go the to? Manual, you could read the manual 50 times. It's never going to explain it to you. Nobody makes any, there's one guy on the, the internet that makes a video on this and, and I don't understand him. Uh, Gary Fong, I think his name is. You're going to learn a little bit from his, but not really. I'm, I'm waiting for you or Dave Dugdale to really make a good, uh, I just got back from a five-month shoot living in motels, so uh, I might have to add that to my list. I've had so much frustration with the A7S that I might have to put together a setup guide for it. I mean, um, it's a wonderful camera. The menu system, like you said, is tough. It is takes a while to get used to. Um, they made some improvements as far as the handling goes on the A7 II, the new one. They've dampened some buttons. The back one where you're changing aperture, you yeah. can change it without any noise. On the other one, it clicks. It just, you know. That it's part really- I didn't find that irritating simply because I'm not changing aperture at all unless I'm using a manual lens while I'm yeah. filming. And even then, it has to be declicked. So the the other issue, I was looking for the freaking output for the HDMI because natively, when you grab the camera right out of the factory, it does that weird, like, boxed-in thing. And it yeah. does the boxed-in thing on any monitor you plug it into unless you go to a special setting in the HDMI section that turns off all of the uh, display information. Display, yeah. And as soon as you do that, then it goes full frame. 
but it doesn't cover 1080p until you do that. And no matter what you do, what setting you mess around with, nothing works until you find that one setting and, and change it. And I was on a project and I had to stop and, and wait for 30 minutes while I dug through everything to find out like, okay, how does this work? And then I finally did it. And that should not be that hard. That should no, be something that should be right there. they don't show you this in the manual that well. They don't really show it in the manual. And, and, and that's one bad thing about them. And, and it's not really great. And, and, you know, thank God that we're living in a time where we have these smartphones because now we can put the manuals on our phones. Yeah, and keyword search. Um, but still, horrible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one last gripe about the, the Sony A7S since we're <laughs> on, like, you kind of yell at the Sony A7S is your naming convention, Sony. Okay, we have the A7S, the A7R, the A7 II, we have the AS7, we have the FS7, the FS700. Come on, give these cameras real names that aren't just like the same letters and some numbers because yeah. I get lost. Like I'm talking to somebody and I was talking about the um, FS700 and I was – getting it confused with the FS100 because they both have FS in the title. And like, I sound like a fool because I'm talking about one camera, but then I'm actually talking about the other camera and I keep saying the wrong thing because they're so close together in naming. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, I, I have the same problem. I don't really talk about the FS700 or seven too much, although I want to try out that F7. Um, but you know, even on the a7, you know, A7R. Okay, so A7R is what? For resolution? Yep. And and A7S is sensitivity. I guess that kind of makes sense, but... And then you, know, you have the just plain A7, right? A7. No, but now A7 II, right? I, you know, and it's then confusing. what is it A7 III, A7 IV. I guess that's better than just not, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I'm really kind of pissed off. The one thing is I do love the new grip. If you ever get a chance, you'll hold it. Um, you come down to Vegas, you can play with all of them, but it is a much better grip, but I have battery grips now that are useless for anything other than the A7S. And that's just, and this is a camera that's only a year old, you know? Yeah. That's kind of awful. I mean, at least they could have at least made the grips compatible somehow. Yeah. Or and with this camera, you do need a battery grip. Do they uh, both uh, use the same uh, battery type at least? Oh, yeah. Same battery type. Oh, I guess. And, and, and you know, you got to wait for Best Buy to have sales. You can get them for $35. You know, I haven't had any issue with the uh, generic Wasabi batteries in my Sony cameras. I know a lot of camera manufacturers will complain about using generic batteries, but they've worked just fine. And I have six of them and a couple of dual chargers, and they, they do the trick. And I don't find the A7S's battery life to be so awful that I can't just change out batteries every so often. No, it's not as bad as the uh, pocket center camera. Oh, yeah. The Black Magic. That was horrible. That uh, was horrible. I was and not I, a fan of I, that. I think if you are going to buy an off-brand battery, I think the Wasabi's the one to go with. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the uh, non-generic, gener I mean, it's the better of the ones, you know. Yeah, and they usually have chargers that don't start on fire and uh, um, a little bit of a warranty. I've had Wasabi batteries that have gone bad, and I was able to turn them into Wasabi and get replacements for them. Uh, so that's actually kind of nice compared to some of the other ones where it's like, hey, these batteries are $2, but they may or may not work depending on which batch they came out of, and they may like just be awful. I used them in the the GH3, the Canon uh, 5, 5D, 7D. I think it was it. 
Oh, oh, a couple. We had a couple T three eyes at one time. Oh, the uh, L LPE eights were the T three and T two eyes, and then the LPE sixes were the seven D and the five D oh. Mark three. Yeah, yeah. The LP, the, yeah, all of those we used. To, I, I got some wasabis for the T threes and T fours. Once they came out with the decoded batteries, they weren't bad at all. And I know Canon has some like scary videos where they're like, you put these into your camera and your camera's going to start on fire. But uh, honestly, yeah. I've been using generic batteries for years and not had an issue. Nah, I was afraid to put one in the A7S because uh, because they're you know you uh, twenty five hundred dollars per camera, but I, I think you'd be okay. But you know, only thing, only reason I didn't do it is because I did find them on at, at Best Buy's for thirty five dollars one day. No, that's and not bad. I just went I just went and bought them. Yeah, I bought seven of them. Yeah, and once you get up to f- uh, five or seven batteries, that's enough to where you can rotate them through the charger and still have plenty uh, left over. And the charging time on those is under three hours, I think. So and and I found the Sony chargers for uh, twenty six bucks. Yeah, I was a little irritated with the. Uh, a7s that whole like oh plug it into usb like are you kidding me that's ah there's one good use for that what's that you can use a oh a usb power pack and plug it into that yeah that's true that's the only good thing about it i i I held it up thinking that the people are seeing that i'm sorry oh no problem you Um, you can use your 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 usb charger on your a7s I am, uh, uh, this is still a beta podcast, so as soon as we move to the real one, we'll probably switch over to Hangouts and start doing full video stuff, but we have now added an extra 21 minutes to this cast, man. If you want to use it, if you don't use it, that's good. Oh, no, I'll throw it on, because this has been pretty cool information and stuff, and actually, I enjoy, well, um, hold on, we're going to stop the recording now, because otherwise, this could really go long. All right, guys, that's it for the secret extra bit at the end.